Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the home of New Zealand's only specialist evaluative UX research practice and world-class UX lab, enabling brave teams across the globe to de-risk product design and equally brave leaders to shape and scale design culture. You can find out a little bit more about that at thespaceinbetween.co.nz. Here on Brave UX, though, it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of world-class UX, design, and product management professionals. My guest today is Kareem Mayan. Kareem is the co-founder of Savio, a SaaS product that helps makers of SaaS products to centralize, organize, and prioritize product feedback, delighting customers, and reducing churn. He is also the founder and principal consultant of Trial to Paid, where perhaps somewhat unsurprisingly, he helps growing product-led B2B SaaS companies to increase trial-to-paid conversion. Between 2002 and 2007, Kareem worked at ESPN.com as a technical producer and then at Fox Interactive Media as a director of product development for the R&D division. But he threw in his budding corporate career to heed the call to adventure, founding his first company, Edufire, in 2007. In what must have been a furious 16 months, Kareem helped to raise an angel investment round of half a million dollars, build a community of 80,000 teachers and students, and set the company up for a $1.3 million seed round. However, Kareem's fire for Edufire faded and he left the company to travel the world as a digital nomad, a journey that took him across all seven continents. Definitely more on that soon. Since 2011, Kareem's passion for product has seen him start three companies, including Savio and Trial to Paid, and sell two. If you're wondering about the maths there, the sales include CodeTree, a company that he and his partners grew after purchasing it from Derek Reamer, the co-founder of Drip. Given Kareem's career path, I suspect we're in for a good set of stories today. So hold tight and Kareem, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brennan. Great to be here. Really good to have you here. And I've enjoyed actually looking into all the things that you've been up to in your career, in particular, the, the nomading, which we'll come to soon. I just want to touch on first, though, just your origin, I suppose, and how you got involved in this wonderful field of product, UX, design, entrepreneurialism, because I understand that you studied a computer science and psych at McGill University in Montreal. And then you went on to actually start work as a programmer with an internship in an enterprise software company where you were writing programs in C. And I just want to quote something you said about that experience, which is, at the time, I didn't understand how the sausage got made. Now, one could forgive you for being you know, a recent graduate for not quite understanding how the sausage was made straight away out of university. But what was it that helped you to figure that out? You know, it's interesting. I have been into computers since I was a wee lad. I got my mm -hmm. Commodore 64 at uh, age 12 after uh, winning $300 from radio stations and having my dad put up the other half of the money to buy it, taught myself to program there. And so have always been into computers and always sort of projecting forward, imagined that I would be in sort of this, this realm. That was 89 when I got my Commodore 64. And so in, I want to say it was 98, 99, I ended up at this enterprise software company doing an internship, a summer internship. It was called Backweb Technologies. It was in uh, Toronto. And, you know, I understood that in order to make software, you need programmers because 
like without, you know, the, the core sausage makers, the sausage is not getting made, but I ended up working in the product management group and that exposed me. I worked as a programmer in that group, making little, actually the first tool I built was a feature request tool to help manage <laughs> the incoming feature requests from sales and CS, which is sort of ironic, ironic, even what Savio does exactly full circle, 20 plus years later. Um, <laughs> But you know, I realized that oh, okay, there's this there's this function in companies called product management, and it's their job to talk to customers, to understand what customers need, to figure out what a, a high ROI solution looks like to build, and then to work with the dev team to build it. So I had no idea that that even existed until that internship, and so um, that was my first exposure to sort of the the additional functions beyond dev within side a software company. And you moved away from dev, right? You moved away from programming and C. Uh, I, could, I, I don't want to hazard a guess here, but I'm, I'm assuming that uh, programming and C was, was, a, was a special experience. What was it that made you put down the code, you know, put down the, the source editor in favor of that broader role, that different role of product manager? Yeah, you know, I, so I majored in CS and then I, I started off majoring in CS and then I switched to psychology. My major to psych and kept the minor in CS. And part of the reason there was because CS was very theoretical. And so, you know, at that point, I, I sort of looked around and said, what else is there? And I said, you know, this sort of understanding how, how and why humans do what they do is super interesting to me. And so that was sort of the background. I went into my first job at a company called ALS.net, uh, which was a, a nonprofit biotech trying to find a cure for Lou Gehrig's disease. And I found one day I was, you know, Googling to find something and I ran across Joel on software.com, which was Joel Spolsky's blog, who went on to found Trello and Stack Overflow and, you know, devoured it in, you know, in a night. And, it, you know, he had <laughs> written a book or uh, was just about to write a book called Usability Testing for Developers. And that made me realize, huh, like, it's not just about what it does, but it's, you know, the inter Basecamp, the 37 Signals guys later on popularized this, you know, this notion of the interfaces, the software to people, to the end user. And so um, I sort of, that was always kicking around in the back of my head and, you know, influenced, I was doing full stack dev at the time. So influenced, you know, not just building, making sure it worked, but making sure that it was easy to use as best I could. And then I moved on to ESPN and that role was what they called a technical producer. So you were doing some front end, some back end, and some product. You know, really moved more towards, you know, a heavy sort of front end skew there. And then, you know, it just sort of took naturally, like I still code today in uh, Ruby on Rails and, and Python and Django, but I will still, you know, I, I, I bias towards making things easy for users to do what they're, to get their desired outcome such that uh, there's alignment between that and what the business is, is trying to accomplish, what the business goals are. That's interesting because you also coach product managers as far as I could tell and having that hands-on practice still of being in the code and writing the code and also being a founder, right? And you being quite close to, I would imagine, to the product feedback that comes in on Savio, that would yep. give you a unique perspective for adding value to product managers that may not be quite as connected or, or close to both the engineering and the customer. It's a tricky I mean, it's a great spot to be in if you have the technical background. A lot of folks, you know, don't. Like when I coach, I don't do a lot of coaching anymore, but when, you know, historically when I've coached PMs who are not technical, I say, you know what, that's fine. You have a, a compatriot on the on the dev side. You, you should have an engineering manager to work with to help you sort of shepherd and manage those folks. So, you, you know, your job should really be about deeply understanding the customer better than anybody else. And, you know, the the whole suite of things that go with that, you know, getting on the horn directly with them, you know, watching full story, you know, working with your 
UX and research departments, reading all the incoming support tickets and sales tickets and, uh, you know, feedback from sales. So uh, it's, you know, if you can't inhabit the sort of the, the nice Venn overlap of technical and, you know, customer focused, then just, you know, the, the advice that I give is always just do what you do, what you can do what you're good at. Uh, and if you don't like talking to customers when you're in product management, you're, you're probably in the wrong job. So you should, you should be very good at talking to customers. Yeah, yeah, I imagine that's uh, cold comfort to to a few personalities. However, <laughs> a product does tend to, from my my exposure to PMs, they they do tend to lean towards wanting to spend time with customers. Sometimes uh, to the chagrin of the UX researchers uh, who who feel a bit of patch protection coming into that picture. I just want to come back to something that you mentioned very briefly, which was your time at ALS Therapy Development Institute. Now, that was your first job, as far as I understand, after the internship that you did at BackWeb. That's a very specific and at least outwardly projects quite a purpose-driven choice to work at a place such as that. Is that the case? Was that the case? Was there a reason for you wanting to work there? So it was it was sort of threefold. I had, after BackWeb, I worked at a web dev shop in Montreal where, where McGill is um, for a summer. And then the guy who ran that had gone down to Boston to work for ALS uh, TDI. And when I graduated, he called me up and said, hey, are you interested in, you know, in coming down and, and working here? And so sort of three things. There was one, it was in Boston, which, you know, I didn't have any particular love for Boston uh, in general, but I, it was an adventure and it was in the US and sure, why not? One was, it was working on with a guy that I had worked with before and that I, you know, worked fairly well with. I had a, a long leash. And he really encouraged learning, which is great. And then one was, um, you know, as you sort of alluded to, like the CEO of the company, uh, his name is Jamie Haywood, or, or was when we started it was Jamie Haywood. Um, he started it because his brother Stephen was diagnosed with ALS in his, I want to say, late twenties, and his doctor said, you know, make a will, get your affairs in order. You have three to five years to live. And ALS, for those who don't know, or otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease, is, is pretty horrific because your mind stays perfectly fine, but your body deteriorates. It's a neurodegenerative disorder and big pharma doesn't spend, let's just say pharma doesn't spend, big pharma has got a connotation. Pharma doesn't spend a lot of money on drug discovery development because it's too small. It's called an orphan disease. It's too small to justify any kind of investment in it. And so uh, Jamie started this nonprofit in order to find stuff to help his brother and other people like his brother. And so when I went down on the recruiting trip, Jamie and I went out to dinner and he said, you know, I have uh, one line I still remember, you know, 20 plus years later, he says something like, you know, I have a good buddy who runs an air, an HVAC company, you know, installing air conditionings and air conditioners and heaters, and he's worth millions and millions of dollars. And when he goes to parties, he says, you know, people say, oh, what do you do? He says, oh, you know, I run an HVAC company and they're like, their eyes glaze over. And he's like, when I go to company, when I go to parties, you know, what do you do? I start this nonprofit to help save my brother's life and people like him and people are like, oh, that's interesting. And so he said, you know, Kareem, you've got a choice in life as you sort of, you know, as you sort of consider your professional journey, you know, do, do you want to run an HVAC company or do you want to do something more meaningful? And I got to tell you, um, Brendan, it was, it's the most meaningful job I've had to this day. Like I, I would be, you know, you're so disconnected sometimes, you know, typing on the keyboard, working with scientists, analyze data, you know, writing code. And then somebody comes in who's in a wheelchair and their family comes in with them and they're literally in tears thanking you, you know, a 25 year old dum-dum from Toronto, you know, in front of a computer saying, thank you for doing what you're doing. And I'm like, it just connected the, you know, fingers on the keyboard with the bigger picture that you're actually, you know, helping make somebody's life better, potentially extend it and hopefully one day find a, find a cure for it. That feeling of 
meaning and that connection of what you're doing on the keyboard to having real world impact to a huge degree in someone's life, right? This is someone's health, uh, the health of their loved ones. Is that something that you miss? Are you implying that the work that I'm doing doesn't have a larger meaning or a larger impact at that scale? You're right. I mean, you're right. I'm, I'm just being snarky. It's um, perhaps that perhaps know, think, it was unfair. <laughs> no, no, it's a totally fair question. I, I actually think it's a great question. Like, I think that the way that you get meaning or derive meaning from the things that your your daily activities, your activities in life changes over time. I was 25. I didn't really know much at all. I, I still know not a lot, but I know a little bit more. And, you know, I've lost a parent. I have two little girls who are wonderful. I have a wife who's fantastic. And so I think the way that I derive meaning, I really try not to derive meaning from work anymore because I feel like work is perilous and changes over time or to do that is perilous because work changes over time. I mean, in a perfect world, it would be wonderful to have that kind of, you know, to get, have those experiences and be, you know, have people say things that so deeply resonate about the work that I'm doing, but I also get that meaning from other places as well. And it's a big piece of what I care about in life is, you know, making sure that there is a reason I'm doing the things and I'm enjoying them for the right reasons. So I have that, that sort of bank account feels full, you know, it feels overflowing. I'm grateful that it's, uh, that I feel like I have good reasons to get up in the morning and, and that I'm contributing positively. Yeah. I, I was asking that question because I was listening to something the other day where the person that was speaking was recounting a time in their career where they were really busy at work building building their career and they also had young children at home and they were telling the story of how when they went for walks they needed to know how long they were going to be away for the walk and when they were going to be back because everything was planned out and focused around how efficiently they could get through things while they're on that uh, climb up the mountain and the feeling of loss that they experience as a result of not paying attention to their children growing up and smelling the roses along the way. And while that might seem like a strange segue from what you were recounting there with ALS and the, the feeling of reward that you got from that, it was, I suppose it was scratching an itch with me that I've been wondering lately about me and my career and just exactly that level of depth and maybe pressing so hard, I st I've started to miss out a little bit more than I would like on my son Teddy and his uh, and his childhood, and so I'm in this quite reflective mood at the moment of like how do I uh, reorganize what is valuable and what is meaningful and in what order uh, do I need to really focus and put my attention in? And I, you strike me as someone that has managed to do this, at least from what I can see from the outside in, and it's something that seems to have been a focus for you over, well, the, the last sort of 15, 20 years. And I, I remember reading about um, you in particular, and you, you had read uh, a book by Tim Ferriss called The 4-Hour Workweek, I think back in 2007. And you were at this interesting point in your career where you'd, you've been working at Fox, you've got this director level role, um, you just left that to start EduFire. And I think I mentioned in your introduction that the, the sort of fire for EduFire started to fade and you made a decision and it seemed to me at least to be quite a uh, fundamental decision to leave that company and do what you did what was the thing that wasn't quite sitting right for you in terms of how you were feeling about your effort and energy that you were putting into edufire and where you where you wanted to be or where you wanted to go next yeah, that's a great question nobody's asked me that before uh, in sort of a professional context so the the real story is that my fiance and i broke up of uh, 7 years we were in la together 
And my business partner at the time, a fantastic guy, actually just did, uh, he's starting another company and just did a reference call for one of the guys he's looking to work with yesterday. So we're still very much in touch. He asked me a few months after my fiance and I had broken up, you know, I, I'm not sure that the company's getting, you know, sort of the level of energy uh, that it needs from you. I think, you know, it might be, might be a good move for, for us to part ways. And I had just told a friend that morning who'd asked me, you know, what would it feel like to leave the company? And I said, it honestly would probably feel like a relief. And so three hours later, I'm having this conversation. My co-founder says that to me and I'm like, how on earth could I say, could I say no to this? I mean, this is a, this is a golden opportunity. It just, it, it just was, it felt right. And so after I left LA, I had always planned to, so after I left ESPN in Connecticut, I had always planned, I wanted to travel the world. And then I got a great opportunity to go work for Fox. I'd left Fox to start Edufire. And so I'd made a promise to myself after you leave LA, it's time to travel. And this was a, this was independent of breaking up with, you know, of any breakups. And so it was a great opportunity because I had the means I had no significant other. I had no professional responsibilities. And so it was a great opportunity to just go and, and be a digital nomad for a little while. I heard you being interviewed around about this time that I think you were a digital nomad at the time and you were challenged by the interviewer about your decision to leave. And you didn't go into probably because it was still quite quite raw, I'm imagining. You didn't, you didn't disclose what you just disclosed there around breaking up with your fiance. But the interviewer challenged you about the decision to leave and whether or not that if you'd stayed, you could have pressed on through the, you know, the time that wasn't fun and, and gotten to a, a different or a better better outcome. And what you said was was really quite remarkable. And I wanted to ask you about it and I'll quote you now. You said it depends on what the goal is, what you're trying to accomplish. The business that I'm working on, the businesses I'm working on aren't businesses that are going to be billion dollar companies. They may, may not even be million dollar companies. They probably won't, but that's okay for me right now. It depends on what your idea of success is. So thinking about success and, you know, this sort of archetypal view of a founder and money, you know, you're a founder, you're, you're still a founder, you've founded several companies. If success isn't about the money, what is it about? I think if you look at people who are successful financially, and I've had conversations with many, you know, there's sort of a, a period for many of them, not all of them, where they go and enjoy life. They buy a boat, buy a nice car, buy a vacation house, travel first class, et cetera, et cetera. But after that, after that, they got to still do something with their life, right? And you could live a life of leisure, but they've sort of earned their freedom to control their time, their energy, and their attention, where they deploy that, where they spend that. To me, that's what that's what it's about. I don't want to have to hit a home run or you know win the lottery or you know or the entrepreneurial lottery in order to do that. And so, you know, in in our pre-interview, uh, Brendan, we were talking about how I you know went to the sauna today because you know I was really sore from playing tennis in the last couple of days, and it relaxes me and it's great. It gives me time to check out and be away from a screen. And so, like to be able to do that which is such a tiny luxury, like anybody could do that pretty much who's got a white collar job. To me, I, I consider that to be the goal. Like, how do I spend my time? Who do, how many people do I have to ask for permission about how I'm going to choose to spend the 24 hours a day, seven days a week uh, that I've got? Like life is so short. And, you know, I think, I think back to your example about being efficient on your walks to get all of, all of the stuff you want to get done. Like, my dad passed away a few years ago and you take nothing with you. Like all you leave behind are the memories of you in the people's heads who are still alive. We're still around after you go, you know, th that to me 
that that event obviously was impactful losing a parent but it sort of makes you reconsider like what what is the goal what am i trying to accomplish here and you know sort of financially it's to earn your time but i think that you know this sort of tim ferris model you can earn your time and freedom and energy without hitting a home run right like you can if you like the work that you do which i very much do you can make a good living and make a good life have happy customers happy clients and still be able to go you know to the sauna for an hour on a tuesday afternoon this notion of i suppose it's lifestyle design but it's actually more than that you know, i mean we're we're reaching into the depths of psyche here in terms of how how we see ourselves and what constitutes being a success and of course we're uh, bombarded with um, messages in mainstream media and, and also on social media as to what that looks like for other people, supposedly. Something that I've thought about a lot as well recently, and I remember watching a talk, and I'll have to put the reference in the show notes because I can't quite remember, but this question of how much is enough came up. And I'm not sure, I'd be interested to see if this has come up for you as well, but this question is not a question that very many people appear to ask themselves. So if you never put an upper bounds on what enough is, then you'll you'll always continue to strive for more. And that sort of feeds into that workaholism that is sort of inherent in you know, busy founders and, and work for people that work in the spaces of which we occupy. Is that a question, how much is enough that you have purposefully sat down and thought about? Or have you framed your freedom in terms of going to the sauna and what it takes for you to get to that point in a different way. Yeah, I don't really think about how much is enough. I mean, I I know that what I have is enough. Like my dad, so my dad, so a little more context. My dad grew up in India. He came to Canada in the late 60s when he was, I don't know, mid 30s probably. And, you know, we grew up, uh, my sister and I, hearing about like, don't waste things. There's kids in India who have nothing. And like, you know, I feel like this is probably a common trope, but, you know, he had the firsthand experience to back it up. And when you travel, you realize how much you have if you're earning $50,000 a year in the West, you actually are wealthier than some ungodly percentage of people around the world. Like you're in the 95th percentile of earners. I'm something insane. Don't quote me on that, but it's something insane. And I really try and stay off social media because we're comparison, human beings are comparison machines and social media is where people generally post the best version of themselves. And so you compare all your crappy days and you know, with the best polished version of other people's selves. And so that just doesn't do good for me or, or really most people. And so I, I don't really, you know, focus on like how much is enough. I just focus on enjoying each day, enjoying the time that I've got here, trying to make customers and clients happy, you know, doing my best as a dad and a husband and a friend and a son and a brother. But yeah, I don't, you know, it's interesting. I probably should ask myself that question. I think it's probably a good, a good exercise to do so. But, you know, my dad really sort of rammed at home that, you know, there are kids uh, and families who really don't have anything. And, you know, I've been to India a couple of times and it's unfortunately true there and, and in, you know, other, other places closer to home. You mentioned your dad passing and you also mentioned just how short life is. What have you changed in your life since your dad passed? That's a great question. I definitely have more of an appreciation for the, so my daughters are eight and five now. When, they pa when he passed, they were four and one four and yeah, four and one and a half. So I definitely have more of an appreciation for as great as it can be and as challenging as it can be the early stage parenting and really, you know, knowing that 
my business partner said this to me. He's got a couple of kids who are older. He said, you know, my son is, I think he's 13 or 14 now. He said, he's not a kid anymore. He's not a baby. He's not going to be that cute little boy that he once was. And that's never coming back. Like he's only going one direction that's older and wiser and adultier. And so, you know, that really, that really stuck, stuck with me to, to really try and enjoy the time with my kids. You know, I think financially or like financial goals, financial intentions is probably the, the right term. Like I really wanted us to be comfortable as a family and, and we are there now. Uh, and, you know, barring any egregious health, you know, concerns, we will continue to be there. And so, you know, when my dad passed, it sort of shifted my focus from earning more to, you know, let's make sure we're comfortable and set up. And you can spend some of that time on what it is you want to do, right? Like if you've earned your freedom, so to speak, you don't, you can choose not to earn and you can choose to spend time with your young children while they still want to spend time with you. So, I mean, I say those are, those are sort of two things uh, that I've changed since, uh, since 2018 when my dad passed. The, the impermanence of it all really does bring into focus what, what matters most. And, you know, you're talking about your friend and his son, you know, being 13 and you wanting to invest more into your um, your girls growing up and, and, and trading off that time you could spend earning extra to the time you could spend experiencing the world with people that are going to grow and change and leave and travel and, you know, not be there. That's something also that I've been keenly aware of with, with Teddy and I can't help but, who's my son, I can't help but wonder when the day will come when he doesn't want me to cuddle and kiss him. And it's quite a it's a day that I know will come because we all have to sort of fly the coop and, you know, sort of get outside of our, our parents' sort of domain. Um, but that for me is that focus. That's the thing that I keep coming back to and why I'm sort of actively like you making decisions now more around optimizing for time spent with loved ones as opposed to time spent working. So so thank you for I'll, sharing I'll about just, your dad. It's really. Yeah, for sure, Brendan. How old is Teddy? He is four, just turned four. So I've oh, so got, got a few got more years, years of Christmas and cuddles yet. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I just want to come to this, uh, go deeper into actually this notion of how we spend our time and something that you said, you know, coming on 12 years ago now, I'll quote you in a second, which I feel is, 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 is interesting still to go into and, and potentially still relevant. And I'm interested to see how your perspective, if at all, has shifted. And that is um, the thing that you said was, I don't subscribe to the notion that you need to work 60 or 70 hour weeks, a week over week over week. I think you burn out. I don't think it's productive. I don't think it's sustainable. I think it's actually a pretty ridiculous way to live your life. So like I said, that was 12 years ago, right? So this is a younger version of Kareem. And now we're in 2022. So this was back in 2010 or thereabouts. How successful, given how addictive work can be, how successful have you been at maintaining that boundary and avoiding burnout in the 12 years since you said that? I'd say very. If the if the definition of success is not working 60 or 70 hour weeks, I <laughs> I really try and, and max out at 35 to 40. I mean, I, I find, I mean, I'm 45 and so, you know, I, I definitely had more horsepower, more bandwidth when I was younger, but I'm not sure that the work was as productive. Like it's sort of that apocryphal story about the, uh, the, you know, the foreman who retires from the factory after 25 years and the factory stops working and they call him in desperation and he walks around and, you know, puts a, marks an X with a piece of chalk by a hole and says, put a, put a bolt there. And he sends him an invoice for a million dollars. 
And, you know, the two line items were Bolt, $1, knowing where to put the Bolt, $999,000. You know, you sort of, you mature, you sort of know, you know, where you, where to spend effort. And so anyways, I, I, I digress. The I really try and focus on, I have less horsepower as, as somebody who's 45. I, I feel like I'm more efficient at getting stuff done, getting the right stuff done, getting the important stuff done that's going to move the the ball forward and whatever, you know, whatever business task I'm trying to accomplish. But it's, it's funny. I haven't listened to those interviews, I think ever the, the Mixer G ones. And it's funny to hear that as you're as you're quoting me to me, I'm like, oh, that's still actually pretty on point. I do think it's a ridiculous way to live. Like I, you can live well, you know, if you're, if you're strategic and smart about implementation, you can live quite well on, you know, I've seen people do very well on 15 to 20 hours a week, you know, and do what they want to do with the rest of the time, whether that's work more or whether that's fish or travel or spend time with kids or, or whatever. So long-winded way of saying, yeah, I've, I think I've been pretty successful at, at that approach and whether, whether other people consider it successful is sort of a different question, but you know, for me, it's, uh, yeah, it's worked out. So let's talk about digital nomad being a digital nomad. You traveled the world. And I think I mentioned in your intro, you ended up going to all seven continents. So it was quite a, uh, a wide ranging journey that you went on. How old were you when you left to do that? And how long were you away for? So I left in 08. So I was 31. And I was back in 2010. So 33. So a good, a good two years. And I think I recall reading that you did the entire trip on less than 30,000 US dollars. That's certainly possible. It was a long time ago. Yeah. I mean, I had the advantage of earning USD and I chose on purpose countries that were not expensive to live in at the time, but had decently high qualities of life. So like uh, Argentina was great. I was in Budapest for four months and Budapest wasn't on the euro, it was on the forint. So your dollars went very, very far and it's still a, you know, an Eastern European country that was fairly Westernized. So yeah, I, I don't recall the exact number, but it's definitely doable. I think probably even more so these days with, with like airline travel rewards and such. I think you could really, you know, that, that's a big, that and housing were the two big costs. And so if you can reduce one of those pretty low, you can, I think, go pretty far even in 2022. Mm, and is it true that you only sit out with a backpack and a laptop? <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I had the, I took a, I took a, I'm a big fan of ex experimenting with real life changes before committing. And so I did a three month trip to Buenos Aires to visit my buddy Noah and I had a big bag and I then decided to ditch that big bag and uh, bring just a carry on bag and reduce everything to, you know, if it didn't fit in there, it went. And so, uh, I ditched my 12 <laughs> books and bought a Kindle, uh, because Kindles are easy to transport. You know, I had, I don't know, I think three boxers and two t-shirts and I just shower and wash one of them every day, uh, in the shower with me. So yeah, I mean, it was, it was you know, it was very actually nice minimalist lifestyles. It, it was very refreshing. Yeah. I look back on, on that fondly. Now you went to, as far as I understand, Antarctica. What was that the most wild place you went to? What, what stands out from your travel as like the most wild, wild experience that you had? That's a great question. I mean, definitely from a nature perspective, it was incredibly rugged. I mean, one of the reasons on the, on the expedition down there, it's about a day and a half to cross the water from, it's called the Drake Passage from Argentina to Antarctica, you know, having some chats with the other 80 guests on the boat. And, you know, we we're like, you know, there's probably been less than a million people who've ever set foot on the place that we are going to set foot. Like, that's pretty insane. So yeah, I mean, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, penguins everywhere, seals, you know, crazy Arctic wildlife, nothing man-eating except for 
leopard seals and and then only really by accident. So you know, generally pretty safe, no polar bears or wolves or anything like that. But nobody around. I mean, we visited the bases and they were very happy to see us. We were one of the first boats of the season, so it was November when we went down, which is Arctic or Antarctic summer, just late spring, early summer. And some of these people hadn't seen anybody except for the uh, like. <laughs> We visited a, a British base, a British outpost. There were three people in a generously like two-room cabin, and one of the rooms was a gift shop. And their job was to count penguins. That's what they did all Antarctic winter. <laughs> and so, when a boat of like ninety people and like you know thirty or forty Russian crew show up, they're like, "Hooray, <laughs> real people!" So, I, you know, I, it was nice, nice place to visit, but I wouldn't want to live there. <laughs> Yeah, you, you said there were three of them. There were probably seven of them when they first started the uh, the season. Yeah, they, they, they had to eat the other four. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I can imagine. What stood out from you from their reactions? Like, just how excited were they to see you? How did that? How did that show up? We visited another base that was. Um, I want to say it was a Russian research base, and they had a bar where they homebrewed vodka. And like you know, after the brief tour in in stilted English, you know, understandably stilted English. They were like, let's go have a drink. And so it was just, you know, let's just socialize with the other Russian crew and the, you know, the 80 guests, you know, most of whom I don't think spoke any Russian at all. But, you know, it was just this sort of like, hallelujah, there's other humans here. There's human connection. There's more boats coming. Some of us can go to their boat and take like a proper mm -hmm. shower um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and provision up. <laughs> and so uh, it was just a, you know, it was, it, was a, it was a need for, you know, human connection and variety. Uh, that they were exhibiting very understandably. So it was uh, it was just a fun, I mean, it was a fun, really interesting, unusual experience. Never experienced anything anything like that before. Now, you mentioned being somewhere where, you know, fewer than a million people have likely been. And from what I gather, mainly from uh, David Attenborough documentaries, Antarctica is uh, fairly barren and fairly remote. There's some wildlife, but other than that, not a lot going on apart from maybe some bad weather. What stands out? to you like what's the lasting impression or memory that you have of antarctica aside from that you know need from human connection from the people that have been there for so long without seeing you know new friendly faces there's a small group of us that opted into kayaking so the way that the, the trip was structured was you'd make land uh and you, you know you'd be moored off off of land and you'd hop into a huge zodiac uh, and go to land instead of doing that if you were in the kayaking group you could opt to kayak. So we kayaked um, with our tour guides to the middle of nowhere. You know, I don't know, it's probably a dozen of us. And one of the, we were, gosh, I want to say three kilometers, two kilometers away from a huge, huge glacier that you could hear the creaking and cracking across the water. And he said, uh, one of the guys said, you know what? I've only, I've done this before, but it rarely works, but we should try it. If we all yell, I, I don't know if this is actually true, what he was feeding us, but he said, if we all yell, you know, on occasion that will cause the piece of ice to fall off the glacier. And it's really kind of cool to see. And, you know, you're far enough away for it to be safe. We tried it out and sure enough, like a huge, I mean, what looked like a huge from that far away piece of ice falls off the, off the glacier and, and crashes into the water. And he's like, now, now we wait. And you could feel the wake I, I guess it's wake. I don't know what you'd call it. You feel the the sort of wave that came from, you know, from the from the ice. And he's like, you know, if we had been under that, we would be done. <laughs> we would be squashed and drowned and probably leopard seal dinner. But that always stands out to me because it was a it was a beautiful sunny day, which is extremely rare there. It was about uh, zero degrees Celsius, so it wasn't too cold at all. And you know, you're off in the middle of friggin' nowhere on this planet and experiencing this really you know unusual sort of nature event where 
you know, you're still sort of participating in it by potentially causing it. But it was, it was just, you know, you're so remote, you're so far from everything on this beautiful day in a boat on the water or in a kayak in the water. Yeah, it's, it's one of my, one of my lasting memories of the trip for sure. It sounds like a magnificent thing to partake in and also to just to just to see and you mentioned the sound and how you could hear the cracking of the glacier now that the sound in places remote like antarctica is something that i have have heard of you know just how alone you are with the with the environment i remember someone who'd been to antarctica telling me that when you're sleeping and because it doesn't doesn't get dark there all the time you can you can hear every every step on the on the snow outside and it's like it's right there in your head it's so so loud and just that sense of i suppose magnificence of the environment of being somewhere where so few humans have been and all the noise that we have in our cities and all the other things our devices just doesn't seem to follow you to that kind of place yeah it gives you some perspective because i mean this is oh I think it's 08 or 09, you know, devices weren't as ubiquitous as they are today. You know, the iPhone was out, but I'm not sure the app store had been launched yet. You know, I, I had an old like Nokia, tiny little phone, or I, actually, I think at that point I had the windows phone It is also like a, it just gives you a sense of perspective. Like there's just so few people here. The planet is so big and so raw and so rugged uh, in certain places that, you know, it, it puts you in your place. <laughs> like if everybody were to disappear and the boat was to disappear and you were left there by yourself, you wouldn't last very long. You know, we, we sort of build up these artifices to protect ourselves from the outside world, which I think is good and healthy. But truly, if you're, if you're, you know, if it's man or person versus nature, you're probably going to end up on the wrong side of it, you know, more often than you'd like. Mm, sounds like you've developed a healthy respect for nature as a result <laughs> of this travel. You know, there, there's some sort of romantic notion of this isn't there of being a digital nomad of throwing caution to the wind and setting off on an adventure like this and you've said something about this which i'll quote you again now you said it's the ability to say where do i want to live and if a better opportunity comes up there's nothing holding me down to a specific location so that's the romantic nature of this type of adventure that you went on what were some of the less romantic aspects of living this life i mean paying the bills Right. Like I wasn't traveling on savings. I traveled on, I had a consulting gig and, you know, the Edufire, which we started in 07 was uh, remote from day one. So I've always, I mean, I've always, for the last 14, 14, 15 years now I've operated that way. And so having a gig that, you know, a long time ago was, was comfortable with its team working that way was super important, but you know, you've got the, the daily realities of living. Like I need to do my laundry and I'm living in a place where I don't speak the language and it's possible the laundromat because I don't have laundry in my, in my building will, you know, they'll speak Hungarian and we'll have to figure it out, you know, <laughs> how it's going to cost. When am I going to pick it up? Don't muck up these wool shirts, you know, don't put them in the dryer because they'll come out, you know, doll size. But you, you know, the, it sort of depends on, on what you envision as digital nomad. Like to me, it was always about working while I was living elsewhere. And it wasn't so much like hopping around five days here, five days there. It was finding a home base for four or five months, six months. And then maybe taking weekend trips, but like your day to day was normal. You're just living in a different in a different city and experiencing a different city culture, language, people, food, etc. Why did you come home? <laughs> I came home for the 2010 Winter Olympics in Vancouver. I went to the 2002 Winter Olympics in Salt Lake City, which were amazing, and I wanted to experience that in my home country. So I was actually in uh, New Zealand and ended up 
uh, coming back to Vancouver for that. Did a couple more. Vancouver became home base. My girlfriend, who became my wife, um, was from there. Uh, we did a couple of other trips. We were in New York for four or five months. We did a couple of other sort of extended trips as well. But since then, since sort of late 2009, early 2010, Vancouver was the home base. And then, you know, kids get into the picture and things just become more complicated. And frankly, like my desire to travel right now, even pre-COVID is, is getting back up there post-COVID. But even pre-COVID, I was like, yeah, I've got two kids. They're five and three. Traveling right now is just not fun. So this is just a phase. And, you know, the next step will be showing them the world and showing them places that I like and cities that I like and, you know, experiencing things that I take for granted through their eyes. So that will be the the next thing when they get of age. Yeah. And what a fun time that will be. When you think back about your travels and you think back about who you were before you left and who you were when you came home, how would you describe that shift if there was any? Boy, that's a tough one, man, because it was so long ago. There was definitely a sense of doing things that I thought were difficult, putting myself out there so here's, here's an example. So I was, I never used to like, I always thought eating alone or going to, uh, going to movies alone was not weird, but I was like, oh, that just feels really uncomfortable. You oh, know, you're, you're not, you're not an only child then. I've done a plenty no. of that being an only, only child. <laughs> well, you learned the lesson much earlier than I did, much younger than <laughs> I did. But I, I remember, you know, you have to eat alone, right? I was in India and I remember walking to a restaurant and bringing my Kindle along and you know, chatting with some random kid who just came up to me and started chatting, wanted to practice English. And it was great. But I remember coming back to Vancouver the next morning, going out for breakfast by myself to a diner and sitting there and being like, huh, I wouldn't have done this two years ago. Like, and it's such a small, silly thing. And I really enjoy it now. But, you know, that's, it was being more comfortable with things that were once uncomfortable. And now in the grand scheme of things are so trivial. Like, so, I mean, that, that was definitely, I just think it, you challenge yourself and, you know, to, when you travel, if you want this experience, for me, it was important to, to sort of create that part of the experience was to just do things that made myself uncomfortable, participate more in life and be less of an observer. Um, that was something that I, I always I sort of tend to stand back and watch things and learn things, learn the system and then jump in. But I did a little more jumping in earlier on, which made myself uncomfortable, but was was great. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's, it's a really good question. I, I may uh, I think back on that one, reflect on that one a little bit more. Never really asked myself that one before. You described it at the time while you were traveling as a need to challenge the assumptions that you'd grown up with as a, as a person growing up in North America. What were the assumptions you felt the need to challenge? A lot of it was around work. So mm. we you know, just, just come off of Edufire and mm. the expectation was you're going to work super hard and 60, 70 hour weeks, uh, which, which we did to run through walls. But, you know, sort of stepping back, you have to ask yourself, why were you doing that? Well, you had a limited runway from the money you'd raised and then you had to raise more and had to raise more and had to raise more. It's sort of this treadmill, right? And if you look around at a lot of businesses that are not software-based, you know, there's a much more stable, sustainable path to growth and success um, that isn't always uh, turbocharged by, you know, needing more VC money or more investment. And so also just, I'd, I'd run or started one company and got some degree of you know, moderate success. And so it was like, well, do I really need a job? Like when I left, when I left Fox to go to Edgefire, we had raised, I want to say 250 of 500. We weren't guaranteed that we're going to raise the 500. I was making 137 grand at Fox and at Edgefire. If we, if we raised the subsequent 250 to get ourselves up to 500, we would have, I think we paid ourselves 54 grand. And I was like, man, this seems like a crazy financial decision, but 
you know, if I, if Edgefire <laughs> completely blows up and I want to go back to Fox in a year, will I be able to? And I was like, yeah, of course I'll be way more valuable, you know, at, at, you know, having had a year of really trying to make it work as a founder and the money is just, you know, an investment in that, in accelerating that learning curve. So. Well, let, let's shift gears now and talk about your consulting what I'm framing is your consulting practice trial to paid. It focuses specifically on helping growing product-led SaaS startups to increase their trial to pay conversion, right? So it's about the dollars. It's how do we get more of our people that have taken out trials to become uh, paying customers, right? So how do we do that? Why did you decide to focus on such a specific thing? Early in my career, I ran across a company called Adaptive Path. They were an early, mm -hmm. early design firm based out of San Francisco. I was at ESPN at the time, and I ended up hiring an analog of theirs called Creative Good. They're on the East Coast, and ESPN was on the East Coast to do some work for us. And they, uh, through the power of effectively usability tests, they sort of uncovered some insanely profitable insights around conversion. I was working on ESPN's fantasy football product. People would sign up, they'd get to a conversion page, and the conversion page gave them no reason, no good reason to convert. You know, the reason was something like, if you convert, you'll have a paid league. <laughs> Well, what does a paid lead get me? Is it, do I want that? You know, how much does it cost? So it's always, that was, this was 2002, 2003. I did a little bit of work for Creative Good um, and learned sort of their methodology and ran a bunch of tests and saw how powerful it was. And, you know, sort of fast forward to when I really honed in on trial to paid the middle of last year, you know, I tried to decide what to focus on. I, I sort of made a list. I had 13 different services people had paid me for, product coaching, being a line PM, product strategy, executive coaching, you know, around building good software, building MVPs, trial to pay conversion. And I knew that I wanted to work with product-led SaaS because I know it, I've been in it for over a decade. Um, and there's really five levers, right? There's acquisition. I'm, you know, that's, I wouldn't say that's a weakness, but it's not a strength. There's activation, uh, which is getting people to sign up for a trial. There's conversion, which is getting people to pay. Then there's retention, getting people to stay. And then revenue, getting people to, to pay or pay more. I think there's a referral in there too. I'm probably screwing up the pirate metrics. Apologies, Dave McClure. But the conversion piece was really, I, I wanted to do something that was directly, correct, uh, directly tied to revenue, something that I had a lot of experience in, something I enjoyed, and something that I was good at. And you know, I'd done a lot of UX work around improving onboarding, improving customer experience, and I'd developed a little framework that I had used with good success on companies of my own and with a, a few clients before. And so just all the pieces sort of fit. And I ended up, it's great validation. I was working with a, with a coach uh, named Kai Davis, who's awesome. And we rewrote the website. This is a quick and dirty version. Um, put it up. Within a week, I had an, a cold inbound lead uh, who found me via Google. And a week later, he'd paid my entire fee upfront. And I was like, that is amazing validation, amazing positive reinforcement for taking this, you know, this risk around niching down your consulting practice. And so from there, it was off to the races. So it, it worked on a lot of levels beforehand. And then that that real positive reinforcement and a, and a happy, my first sort of happy client after I'd niched down was, you know, just kept me going, gave me the, the feedback that I was going in the right direction. You talked about there being a perceived risk around niching down, right? Around not doing the dozen other things that people have paid you to do over time. And that validation of that first paying customer paying you up front, that must've felt like, well, must've felt really good, right? Like you said, it was, it was really nice validation for it. Has it paved the way for you to go deeper into the specialization, realizing that, you know, you're not necessarily, you're giving up some things, but you're, you're also gaining others. Like how has this changed your perspective on what it is that you do in a consulting capacity? I was terrified of saying no to, to mm. paying clients, you know? And so 
the reinforcement really, really helped. There's a guy named Jonathan Stark who helps his his whole thing is uh, hourly billing is nuts. Uh, and so I joined, you know, read a couple of his ebooks and he has a great Slack community with other sort of boutique freelancers. And he has some sort of ideas and approaches on on niching down and why it's profitable. And I, I'd seen it before with friends and with other businesses that I had run. And so, you know, I was like, what am I really risking here? It's just changing a website, you know, and if it goes nowhere, it goes nowhere. I can always zoom out to something else or, you know, uh, dive into something else. But the, my initial approach after niching down was get a handful of good case studies, testimonials under my belt. If the gigs go well, talk to them about who else they were evaluating and what their pricing, what those other options pricing was like. And so, you know, just getting feedback, candid feedback from the market is super useful. How did you find me? You know, who else were you considering? What did they charge? Why'd you pick me over them? And so, you know, the, that information is super valuable when it comes to sort of polishing the website, polishing the service offerings, pol polishing the pricing and packaging, polishing how you, the positioning, how you talk about it. So it hasn't necessarily allowed me to go deeper, but it's definitely allowed me to, I think, be more credible and frankly, be provide better service to my, you know, to my clients because I understand them a lot better now that I've had dozens of conversations and probably half a dozen to a dozen clients to do this, this specific work on over the last uh, year, year and change. You've, cho like you've chosen the specific area of product, helping people, which seems to me to have quite a, a large role in terms of their onboarding, like how they're uh, structuring that journey and supporting people through that journey to become then a paying customer. Given that we're in 2022, and you've been doing this, you said now for over a decade, right? You've got some significant experience in this space. Are you surprised that there's still a market opportunity for you to provide services to solve this specific problem? I mean, yes and no. So yes, because, you know, creative goods steeped me in sort of this customer first thinking for two decades and I've seen how powerful it can be. And it's blindingly obvious to me that when you're solving a business problem, start with a customer. No, because onboarding specifically is usually cross-disciplinary and spans could be marketing. There's an element of product marketing. It's definitely product. There's some customer success in there. And so it's hard to get everybody on the same. A lot of what I do is just getting the teams on the same page in a room and talking about who is your customer, what is their desired outcome, you know, what does an experience in your product look like for that segment of customers? How many segments of customers do you have? Which ones are most important to the business, right? So, getting all that information on, on the same page and so having a consultant do that really helps carve time out of people's busy schedules to get in the same room and talk about that. And then, you know, there's an element of UX specialty or, you know, that you need, you need to know product. It helps to be technically minded because you can think into, when you're sketching out wireframes, you can think in terms of implementation cost, rough implementation cost, right? And so if you have two versions, you'd probably pick the cheap one if you're going to get, you know, if it's going to get you, get you where you need to be. And so, you know, it's, it's a, it's a bit, you know, it's a bit, it's a bit tricky in that you it's cross-disciplinary and a lot of teams just don't have the time bandwidth or skill in one person or in people who are going to work on this problem. So it's, you know, I, I was frankly surprised, like just doing you know, Googling for like SaaS onboarding consultant, you know, SaaS onboarding audit. There are very few options out there. This is, you know, when I, when I decided to, to, to niche down hard last year and I was like, this is weird because every SaaS company needs this and if there's no, like when I see competitors, I think opportunity. Oh, the market is big enough to sustain, you know, a bunch of people who are doing this. Uh, but I didn't see any or didn't see many. And I was like, gosh, this is not good. This is, this makes it riskier. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I'm either onto something out, big here or I'm onto nothing at all. 
Exactly. Exactly right. Exactly right. But you know, I, I also reminded myself that I've been doing product-led SaaS for for over a decade. And so this has been this way of seeing the world is normal. You know, I think this is maybe not normal for for a lot of folks uh, too. So mm. yeah. you spoke about the need to get people on the same page, you know, to achieve that clarity across the different uh, divisions or aspects of the company that are working on delivering the product and serving the customer. Now, something that you've said, and I'll paraphrase now that that you found has helped companies to do this is to treat onboarding like it's a feature so they can align the experience that customers expect today and not what they wanted six months ago so they can figure out what it is that the customer needs in the current moment. So how do you like how do you find out what that is? You know, how do you find out what the outcomes are that the customer is actually seeking from the product at that very specific stage of their relationship with the company or the product that they're using? You ask them. It's very simple. <laughs> so the, I like getting very tactical, Brendan. So, you know, literally the first thing when you sign up for, for my SaaS, Savio, we ask you, like, why did you sign up today? And right now we're just collecting that information. So we're trying to better understand who our customers are and what, what their desired outcome looks like. Tomorrow, you know, we can um, customize your onboarding. You know, if you're looking to set up a voting board, you go down the voting board path. If you're looking to track product feedback that gets sent to you in Zendesk, you go down the, you know, connect Zendesk path. So asking them is, you know, in the app is the easiest way to do it. If you're product led, um, we also endeavor to get into as many conversations via email or ideally, you know, via zoom as we can. I mean, those are really the, the two big things. And, you know, there's a lot of tea leaf reading. Um, that comes once you get all of this qualitative feedback. Like the tricky part in my experience is the analysis, but most folks don't ask, you know, that I work with. And it's it's sort of counterintuitive. We only sort of stumbled on this idea, you know, in the last year or two at Savio. Uh, we're like, why don't we just ask? <laughs> like, what is it you want right now? How can, <laughs> how, and then how can we give you that, you know? Yeah, it's, you know, that's step one, obviously there's more to it, but step one is just getting that qualitative feedback, getting into conversations, you know, parsing, analyzing, sitting and thinking about, you know, all the responses. And then once you understand who your customer is, what they want, then you can construct a flow uh, in your app to, you know, to give them what they're looking for ostensibly. And this is why I say treat it like a feature. It's because you're going to launch it and you're going to have to iterate on it. It's not going to be right or it will be wrong or the market will change or your customers will change. You'll go up market. Um, their needs will change. You'll support a new integration. So treating it like a feature to me means, you know, launching it and then paying attention to it and then iterating on it. So let's speak, let's speak to that then. Let's speak about things change over time. And that's just, this isn't just a, a one-off situation where you get some feedback, you design a flow and, and you're good to go forever and ever. How do you know, and it could be, as you might just say, it's as simple as looking at your conversion rate, but how do you know whether or not you're actually meeting those needs or those outcomes that you've discovered by asking customers, you know, what it is that they're here to achieve? Yeah. I mean, there's, so there's two numbers that I recommend looking at. So one is conversion rate, you know, of the hundred people who sign up, how many actually end up paying you? The second is it depends on the business, but I'd say two or three month churn. So like after two months, how many of those, you know, 15 people that, that have converted end up staying past that point? Because a lot of folks will throw down a credit card, you know, to ensure that, the, to ensure they can throw down their company's credit cards, not even their money, right? To ensure that they can tease out the promise that your app provides them and verify that it will in fact give them their desired outcome, but it will probably take more than 14 days. So after a month or two, you know, they may have realized, oh, this actually won't, and they will turn and go elsewhere. So those are the two numbers that I 
I look at. I mean, I I would also say depending on your volume, I would also look at full story or some sort of screen recording tool to understand where people stumble. I'd recommend using a site like user testing to run user tests to see where people stumble. There's a whole sort of other variety of ways, but like there are unfortunately that are leading indicators, but those, those lagging indicators are churn and, or sorry, are conversion and, you know, say two or three month uh, churn. What can you learn from your churn? The reason, the most important thing to learn is why are people churning? So people churn after two or three months, um, you know that the initial conversion experience is good. You're promising something, but somewhere between them paying you and them canceling two, three months later, you know, the experience is falling over. They're not getting to their desired outcome or they don't believe they will get to their desired outcome if they keep putting in the time. So, I mean, the biggest thing to figure out is why are people churning, right? Are they not turning on or using part of the app that would solve their problem? They don't know about it. Does your app lack something that they need? Your app just doesn't have it. You need to invest in building it, right? So like the first thing would be, the first scenario would be we need to invest in support and success, right? This thing exists, but people don't know about it or they can't use it, can't figure it out. The second scenario, we need to invest in product and dev because they need to do this thing and it just, it, we don't have it. So, you know, th that's really the, all of this stuff is so qualitative and I think the world has fallen in love with quant, but there's so much insight in the qual and the conversations that you can use to, to improve your, your product and I really encourage folks to just just get down and dirty with customers, get into conversations, you know, do the unscalable stuff, um, even at you know at later stages, because it there's there's gold in those in those insights. You spoke about the challenge of synthesizing qualitative feedback and making sense of it all, right? Like, well, we've we've been capturing all these reasons why people sign up and the reasons why they're leaving, but what does it all mean, and how do we use it to focus? our efforts on the product and change the things that we need to change. Now, Savio, your current company, that seems to me to be scratching at that itch. It's, it's how, how to help companies deal with the volume of that inbound feedback and then use that to prioritize the, uh, the features or the changes that they're going to make to their products. And I heard you listen, I, I listen, sorry, I, I listened to you speak to Chad McAllister on the Product Mastery Now podcast and we're going to get into now, we'll get into some territory around just the tricky parts of working in a collaborative environment where there's you know more than just a couple of founders putting something together. You said, one of the places where I see teams struggle when I embed is that people aren't clear on what the company is actually trying to accomplish. Once leadership identifies what the business goal is, it becomes a lot easier to narrow down the candidates of what your features may be, or in this case, it could be what you're going to change in your onboarding flow to increase conversion. It is incredibly frustrating for people to operate without a clear goal of what they're trying to achieve. So what's your advice for people on those teams who are currently sailing in a sea of ambiguity, you know, should they should they mutiny and join forces and get rid of the leadership and try and sort this out on their own? Like, how do they actually grapple with what to do and what to change if leadership isn't being clear about what the goal is? I mean, my my cynical advice is leave, find a place that that you know where you get clear direction. It's tough, right, when you're not piloting or captaining the ship, so to speak. It's tough to get direction if that person doesn't want to give it to you. And so, you know, lean on your boss. One thing we've seen a couple of folks at Savio do. So Savio, typically we sell to customer success or support or product managers. And so, you know, we organize up your product feedback and product ultimately consumes it and uses it to decide what to build. But we have CS folks who will 
as sort of a skunk works project, sign up for Savio and say, you know, when we get them on the phone or, or, you know, over email, they say things like, we say to product all the time that we need features X, Y, and Z, because we hear from customers all the time and product says, well, give us data or oh, we don't believe you, or these other strategic features are more important. And so they use Savio as a way to basically build up the, the evidence to, to show to product, uh, to convince product that they're, you know, that what they're saying is is true. You don't have to do that in a product feedback scenario. You can do that in any scenario, right? Like if there's, if you believe, if you have, if you want to stay in fight and you have a, th you know, I would say build the theory as to what you should be doing and then go gather the evidence and then go present it to somebody who can, you know, either make the decision uh, to back your case or not, or to somebody who can influence the decision to back your case or not. I mean, that would be the sort of stay in fight scenario advice that I would, I would give to somebody is, you know, is don't just sit there. It's don't just sit there, do something right. Like use your brain that you're paid well to use and go formulate a theory and, you know, build, build a case, make a decision, you know, take some control over, over what it is your, over your situation. Right. I like that rather than just uh, running straight for the door, put some effort in first and then see if you can change the status quo. And if you can't, then you can step back and reevaluate where you go to next. Exactly. We're touching on your framework here for prioritizing product feedback. The first part of it is actually just to get clear on what the goal is, because that's super helpful in working out what you should and shouldn't be doing. The second step in the framework is to prioritize the product uh, feedback based on the features that have been requested by your most important customers. Now, hopefully I've done that justice and feel free to, to correct me if I haven't. But what makes a customer a most important customer? Is this simply based on their ARR or is there another way that you can evaluate importance in this respect? Yeah, so it's, it's really contextual because, you know, depending on what the business goal is. So if your business goal is win more deals, you may want to look at reasons, feature reasons, product reasons why you are losing deals. And your most important customers would be actually not even customers. They would be lost deals. Um, if you want to reduce churn, go look at uh, product-related reasons why customers churn. If you want to grow revenue, you know you may or you're changing strategic direction and focusing on a new customer set. You may want to look at your. I'll give you a concrete example. At Savio, we sold to customer success initially because they had the most pressing pain, but ultimately, product uh, managers and product teams were the teams who you know they increasingly started coming to us. And we solved a whole set of problems for CS, but there were a bunch of things we didn't do for product that were mainline scenarios for them. And so we then, you know, when we strategically shifted direction and shifted our R&D efforts to focus on building for product, we said, who are our smart product customers today and what have they asked for, right? So it wasn't even about ARR, but it was like, we want more of those kinds of customers, more of those kinds of product managers using Savio. So let's go build you know, features that they've asked for. It could also be as simple as looking for the, look at the most requested features or um, looking at your highest ARR customers, or, you know, it really depends on the, on the context of, of what the, you know, what happens in step one, what's the business goal. I want to do this part of the conversation justice, and I can hear some people probably in the UX research community groaning about building what customers have asked for but I know that there's more subtlety to what we're talking about here than we've currently gone into. The, the reason why they'll be groaning is the whole notion of just building what a customer's asked for uh, seems very reactive and not very proactive in terms of understanding what it is that underlies the request itself. So how do you know whether what customers are asking you to build based on what you've been collecting is actually what you should be building for them, that it's actually going to solve the underlying need that they're trying to address. 
Yeah. So I'm being a bit glib when I say build what customers are asking for. What I really mean is deeply understand the problem that underlies the request, right? That's your job in product or in, in research is to understand the problem before you hop to the solution space. And, you know, some scenarios, customers know exactly what they want and it's right. That's the thing you should build. But in some scenarios, you know, they don't know. It's your job to understand the, the problem. You know, there's, there's also a bit of a, a bit of a, a split that I've seen sophisticated organizations work on. Like they make this explicit. How much of our R&D budget do I want to invest in one of three buckets, technical debt, strategic features that customers have not asked for, and customer requested features. And so at any time, you know, during a prioritization cycle, it might be 50, 50, zero, you know, 33, 33, 33, 100, zero, zero. But, you know, really sort of digging into or making that explicit is, is quite helpful because from a prioritization perspective, it helps you really decide, should we focus any of our budget at all on you know, building customer requested features or not? Mm. So those buckets, those categories, is this touching on what you're getting at in the third step of your framework, which is to prioritize further based on attributes that matter? Or is this something different? Is this more about like what tier of customer are they? Are they enterprise or are they sort of on the SME end of the scale? Or is there, are there other attributes that you can further prioritize on? Yeah, it's most it's mostly on that piece. So like the at the uh, enterprise plan, or you know by geography, or by number of seats, or really like any other sort of deep dive into the the customer attributes that you care about. That's yeah, that's really more what I'm what I'm talking about in that in that third step. Yeah, and step four is you've got to determine your development budget, and you've spoken about the need to make trade offs with engineering here about what gets done, and also to what degree. So what does done look like? And you've summed this up as, and I'll quote you now, spend your devs wisely. Now, this maybe is a bit of a obtuse uh, question to follow up from that, but where does research and design feature at all in this picture? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So it depends on the stage of the business, right? If you have research and design, <laughs> then I prefer having them on board earlier on in the process. I find them anybody who's customer facing, you know, will have insights that are useful when it comes to prioritization. And, you know, at that point, I want the most brain power on the problem so that, you know, product can take all the inputs and, you know, and make some decisions. But obviously when it comes down to uh, the trade-off process, you know, hopefully at that point we've sketched out what the feature would look like at a high level if we don't have hi-fi, you know, mocks. And so, you know, you're then making trade-offs around very specific things. If we build this feature this way, you know, will it be more expensive than if we build it that way? Or, or better yet, hey, Dev, you're a smart person. Tell me, you know, how we can make this implementation, this hi-fi, tell me how we can make this cheaper so we can get it out the door faster and, and learn sooner. And at this part, point of the five-step framework, we're actually still in the theory space from my way of looking at it. And your fifth step is quite a critical one, which is for teams to actually choose to actually decide on what it is that they're going to build and then confirm what that is with other stakeholders who are impacted by those decisions. And basically you've got to go out and consult with the other departments, the other leaders in the other departments that have an interest in what it is that you're doing. Is this where you get everyone together in the same room and just hash it out? <laughs> if you don't, if you take that approach, my experience suggests that you'll be unsuccessful. The more successful approach that I have learned the hard way, unfortunately, is going and having one-on-ones with, you know, the head of sales, the head of CS, the head of, you know, any execs that need to be on board so that the, the in-person meeting is in a best case scenario, rubber stamp from everybody. 
um, because you've already sort of had the difficult conversations, made the trade-offs, explained your trade-offs, possibly done some horse trading because like, you know, there's reality and there's, and there's practice. And like the reality is that you've got a, sometimes you have to horse trade and make decisions you don't want to make because or build things you don't want to build because you're not in charge, uh, in, you know, in, in some situations. So yeah, the, the stakeholder piece is always, is always tricky. That's, you know, anything that involves people is messy and, and, and this is, you know, the ultimate, like, how are we going to, we're sausage makers collectively, right? Some sell the sausage, some support the sausage, some make it, and everybody has an opinion on what kind of sausage and, you know, should it be rosemary thyme or, you know, apple raspberry? Uh, so <laughs> definitely rosemary on, thyme. Yeah. I, I'm with you on that. <laughs> uh, so yeah, no, it's a, it's a tricky, it's a tricky, tricky part of the process for sure. It sounds less like product and more like politics, but more closely I mean, aligned to reality. Yeah. 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 I mean, it really is. It really is. I mean, any, anytime you have more than one person in a meeting, there's some degree of politics involved, you know, unfortunately, but it doesn't have to be negative. It can also be positive. You talked about the meeting when you do get everyone together after you've done the one-on-ones should be in best case scenario where you just get the rubber stamp, you know, you've made your trades, everyone's aired their grievances, supposedly everyone's happy with the compromise before you get in the room. What do you do if someone throws a spanner in the works when you think you've got it all sewn up? It's a great question. I think the answer really depends on what the nature of the spanner is and how much support it has in the room, right? Like the thing that I tend to fall back to is the customer evidence, right? You've got a list of product feedback from customers that support the business goal you're trying to accomplish. And you just show it. You say, look, we're building these five features because you know, here's the feedback and here's the sort of high level stats on, on the feedback. And that's going to support our business goals in this way. And if somebody disagrees, you know, that's great. The discussion is good, but like, where's the feedback or sorry, where's the evidence, you know, like here's the evidence that I've gathered. And it's great that you feel like you should, you know, we should be building X, Y, or Z. It'd be great if you could show and explain, help us understand why that's a better course of action. This like, not that this is necessarily the best, but if you want to bring a new perspective to the table, like let's have that discussion based on evidence rather than feeling. So, you know, you gotta be a good politician to say that in a productive way. It's not going to get you kicked out of the meeting or the company, but mm-hmm. I find that it's very, <laughs> it's very compelling, right? Like, you know, I've, I've been in rooms where CEOs have said, look, I'm the CEO, we're going to build it that way. And I see the sort of disgruntlement on behalf of the team who have you know gathered the evidence and the CEO saying, I'm using my CEO silver bullet to, you know, to veto this. And you can do that as a CEO, but you can only do it so many times before your people are like, well, what am I doing here anyways? Like, what's the point of all these activities 100%. gathering the evidence? You know, it just doesn't make sense. So yeah, that's a good way to kill your company culture and make everyone feel like they're just drones if you if you override people like that. So Kareem, we've spoken a lot today about what what you do in terms of helping teams to prioritize what it is that they should be working on in their product. And the first half of our conversation, we were speaking about how we prioritize our lives and where we spend our finite amount of time. You know, just that appreciation that through loss. And some of the less comfortable and less happy sides of life can bring into focus. So thinking about this notion of prioritizing and focusing and just the beautiful shortness of this life that we have, what is one thing that you want 
the audience, and I know we're talking to product managers and UX designers, UX researchers, right? Um, but we're all people, we're all human. What is one thing, whether it be personal or professional, that you want people to consider or contemplate to, you know, go and take a walk and think about as a result of your career and your experience and the stories that you've told today? I, th I think it's, you know, figure out what you want in life and, and why. Like there's a default setting, I think, for a lot of hard chargers, you know, get the next promotion, get more money, get a bigger title. And that's great if that's what you want, but it's not great if that's what you're defaulting to without being considerate, without taking those actions. You know, when you, when you can figure out what it is you want out of life and what you want to give back, you know, there's a, there's a phrase, I don't know who said it, but show me your, your calendar and I'll tell you your priorities. And so, you know, when you've figured out what you want and why, and you, you know, it resonates, you can do your best to structure your life in a way so that you're going to be able to get that and, and give that by deploying your time and attention and energy in ways to, in ways to get there. So I say, go take a, a long, go do some forest bathing. Uh, and think about you know what it is you want out of life and and why is that important to you? Such a, an important couple of questions for people to think about and to answer. Kareem, this has been a hugely enjoyable conversation, especially for two sleep deprived people like we are. <laughs> Thank you for sharing your stories and your insights, and for putting up with a couple of rough starts there on some questions that we will no doubt edit out, so you people won't hear any of those. Thank you for doing that with me today. Thanks, Brennan. It's been a, a true pleasure and, and please keep up the great work. I really appreciate it. And it's been a pleasure for me also. Kareem, if people want to keep up with the great things that you're doing, follow your journey at Savio and all the other things that you've been doing, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, they can visit me at trialtopay.com uh, if they need help with trial to pay conversion. If they're looking to, if they're feeling uh, overwhelmed by the product feedback that they're getting, uh, they can hit me up or visit savio.io, S-A-V-I-O.io, or email me directly, k at savio.io. Uh, and they can also just track me down on, on LinkedIn. The name's Kareem Mayan. Perfect. Thanks, Kareem. And to everyone that's tuned in, it's been great having you here as well. Everything we've covered will be in the show notes, including where you can find Kareem and all the great things that we've spoken about. If you enjoyed the show and you want to hear more great stories, like this with world-class leaders in UX design and product management. Don't forget to leave a review on the podcast. Those are very helpful. Subscribe and also pass it along. If there's one person, just one person that you think would get some value from hearing these kind of conversations at depth, please share the podcast with them. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on LinkedIn. There's also a link to my profile, my LinkedIn profile at the bottom of the show notes, or you can head on over to thespaceinbetween.co.nz. That's thespaceinbetween.co.nz. And until next time, keep being brave. Hey, hey.